off we go then. Okay, well, hello everybody. This is uh, Graham Frost again on the Heart Shape Decisions podcast, and uh, I'm delighted today to have a guest uh, called David Breakspear. And uh, David's again somebody that I've I've met on uh, LinkedIn. We haven't actually met um, face to face yet, largely because we're in this COVID nineteen situation where we, people can't meet up. Uh, unless they're in a bubble and we're not in the same bubble and all that malarkey. So, um, but David is uh, one of the people I've met through my interest in in prisons and people, you know, because I've been in prison, my well, I was in Boston myself many years ago, and my interest in the criminal justice sector. And David, I would have to say that I've met some pretty inspiring people this year and indeed in my life, but David is up there with the most inspiring people, with the, one of the most interesting stories I've heard and uh, I was really keen to get him to come and talk to, on the podcast so I want to help him share his story because it's an inspiring one. So David would you like to uh, tell us a bit about yourself and, and uh, you can start wherever you like. Of course thank you Graham well first obviously hello everyone um, and thank you again Graham for inviting me onto your show. Um, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and um, and I've really enjoyed them as well I, 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 talking of inspiring um, I do find them quite inspiring. Thank you. Um, my story, I suppose, well, really the initial stages of my story are, are very similar to a lot of people that have been in the criminal justice system, um, placed into the care of the local authority, went through the youth custody system, starting off in detention centre in 1985, the youth custody system, and then big man's jail. But... Um, so, I mean, that is something that is very sort of more common um, than perhaps people um, give it credit for. And at the end of the day, um, if we bring it back to brass tacks, I'm, I'm one of 11 million people in this country that have criminal records. So the criminal side of things or the criminal record side of things isn't that rare either, especially in this country. So um, for me, I really enjoy talking about the education side of the journey more than the the prison side, I suppose. The, the right. sort of the education journey that I took whilst in prison. Um, when I, if you like, emotionally matured. Um, mm. But I'd emotionally matured in the prison system rather than in society. So the skills, uh, I, I mean, what, what a few people may have heard this before, but in 2005, I was in HMP Blunderston up in Lowestoft. It's closed down now. Um, and I was introduced to this reading scheme um, by an organisation called Shannon Trust. And it was called Toe by Toe. Um, pretty much says what it says, Toe by Toe. And what it was, the it was training prisoners who can read to teach prisoners who can't. I mean... How simple, and especially in a prison environment as well, when you've got so much time on your hands, that something as simple as that um, obviously takes up a bit of time. So there's that benefit from becoming a mentor um, behind it. But um, it was something I thought, well, I mean, this, this, how, how simple can it be? And I love reading. Um, I mean, the library has been a constant in my life from the age of 10 before the internet, wow. when when if you like Google then was microfiche <laughs> yeah. and, and so it sort of got me skilled in sort of research as well but um, it, it 
it sort of um, the education side. It it wasn't just about academic education, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was about giving back, and it was also about when I become the mentor. Um, as I said, I, I found it such a, a simplistic, profound idea um, that I, I said yes immediately, and, and I ended up becoming a coordinator within the prison. And um, one of my first clients uh, just showed me that the, the power of giving back, and it made me realise and understand how much experience I had that could be positive rather than be a negative in my life. Um, and based uh, on the back of becoming a mentor with the with Shannon Trust, um, because of that, I call it uh, a trade of empathy. Um, when that connection between two people in that environment happens, um, it, it really does affect and change people's lives. And that, that enabled me to see it from that aspect. But unfortunately, what it then done was it, it, it provided me with an identity it provided me with um, a feeling of good um, when, as a criminal, I've always been bad and, and done horrible, nasty things. Um, so um, uh, it's more a case of uh, what, it, uh, I, another way I've described it is you find that it's not about what you learn from each other it's a, or what you're teaching each other. It's about what you learn inside yourself um, when you become a mentor, if you do it for the right reasons. Mm. And, and there are, I mean, there are, and this is something that's another argument, but um, there are, because of the IEP scheme to get enhanced these days, you have to do these things like become a mentor. So that, if you like, creates a, a false economy of mentors because some people are doing it to get the T-shirt and a decent write-up within page 16. But... Um, you, you do get the majority that do do it for the right reasons. And, and when you do do it for the right reasons and you start that, you, you can get that connection. Um, it's just an incredible feeling. And as I say, the problem was, I then gained my identity within the prison environment. Um, and if you like, um, my Maslow's, which is the hierarchy of needs where you start from yeah. psychological needs and you, you go up to self-realization, self-actualization, Searching for an identity for what? Uh, I was born in 1969, this was 2005. My identity, my Maslow's was achieved in prison. Yeah. Um, so it kind of led on to me becoming institutionalized um, and set me on a path from 2004, which is when I went away for that crime, which was um, a serious assault on, on two guys. Um, and um, I, I, I wasn't the right person then. I, from, from the person I was from the day I got sentenced to the person I was, and I, it was only about two months after I got sentenced, I think it was, that I was, um, I was on remand prior to that, um, that I got sent to HMP Bunsley. And um, even the prison itself was like a community. I mean, it, was, it really was a dumping ground for London jails. It was... Right where all the other jails, it was out of the way. There was like, I think it was a maximum of about 450 prisoners, but it worked, Graham. It mm. was, it was, um, it was such a, a, a strange experience. But then because I've, I've, I've always felt that 
I've deserved every single second of my sentence. I've, I've, I've committed crimes on purpose. I've got caught. If you commit crimes on purpose and you get caught, the consequences are you'll eventually go to prison. Mm. And, and for me, um, I've always said that rehabilitation is an attitude. Um, and the key to unlocking that attitude is acceptance. Once you can accept that you're, you're within this environment, and if you'd like, it, it's, let's be honest, prison's rock bottom. Um, mm. However, just flip that slightly. And you can see it as a very, very strong foundation from which to rebuild because it can't exactly get much worse than prison. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, even in prison, um, <laughs> it can't get much worse. So um, what do you do? Well, the Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Ali quote is something that always comes to mind, which is don't count the days, man, make the days count. Um, and I think that that sits absolutely perfectly within prison. Um, and I think as well, in respect of education, it's more important now because of COVID and especially with a lot of jobs that have been lost, the jobs market these days is going to put prisoners very, very, or former prisoners very much at the bottom of the list. Um, I mean, we, we, we are going to be, um, once again, viewed within respect of employment as outside society so it's going to be very difficult to find employment so it's about it's about what else can you do so obviously yet yeah, we need vocational skills we need vocational qualifications so you keep that going on but also education is very important just by coming out of prison you are coming out with a minus against your name just with the very fact that you've been in mm. prison which means you obviously have a criminal record and therefore, things like Ban the Box campaign moving forward, again, have taken on another, um, another level of importance considering the fact that prison is going to be so discriminated against. And, and, and not rightly so, but I understand why that would be the case because um, you've got people that are losing their jobs left, right and centre because of COVID. They're going to be needing to find employment. And... Why shouldn't they get employment first? They haven't been in prison. They didn't commit crime. But um, so it's going to be very difficult to try and break that sort of, if you like, that stigma down once again. That's I think it's going to be built up. I hope not. I really do hope not. And again, um, with a, a sort of nod to what my message is all about, and that's the importance of education, especially mm -hmm. within prison. Um, however, having said that, um, I also do some will be in September doing some work for pupil referral unit because I think everyone should be entitled no matter what chances you're born with in life everyone should have the opportunity of a good education because yeah. it's only through having that good education um, that people can really unleash what it is that they're capable of yeah no absolutely absolutely I think um, you know my, I mean my prison education did it it's a long time ago I was in Borstal, but I think I was talking about this a little while ago to a um, lady who was interviewing me earlier on today. And I said that the one thing that I took out of Borstal was the, I didn't actually go to any classes while I was there, if I remember correctly. I learned, hardly I learned, anywhere about, Graham. Pardon? Hardly anywhere about back then. It was no, but, I learned, I, but I, what I did learn, I learned, how to, I learned how to work in a commercial kitchen while I was there. Yep. Um, which, you know, stood me in good stead over the years. 
And in fact, I'll probably learn to cook there, if I'm honest. And I can, you know, I'm a reasonably good cook now, even my partner says so. But uh, the, um, the, but no, I think the thing that I, the one thing I remember more than anything else from being in Borstal were two things. One was the officer who took me on one side after I'd been in there for a year and said to me, look, he said, Frosty, he said, you're not a criminal. He said, we know when we see some of the lads that come in here, he said, we know there's, there's very little we can do for them. They're already on that road. Um, he said, you're not like that. He said, you need to go and sit on your bed and have a good think about who you want to be. He said, because I don't want to see you back in here. And I remember that conversation. That happened when I was like 19 and I'm, I'm 64 now. I remember that as if it was yesterday. And um, funnily enough, the other, the other thing that happened was um, there was the officer that ran the kitchen, a gentleman called Mr. Breakwell. He was, a, he, was a, he was a chef. He was the chef in the kitchen. He used to supervise the kitchen. He used to have one of those big old-fashioned Grundy radios. He used to bring it oh, to work and put it in the kitchen. And um, he left it there over the weekend. And I used to go in on a Saturday morning to clean the kitchen um, after breakfast. I used to stay in. Well, one day I was playing around with this radio and I found BBC Radio London. And there's a radio show on, on there. There was a DJ called Robbie Vincent, who's still alive. Yeah. And he used to play soul and funk music. Yeah. And I'd never heard that sort of music really, you know, that niche of music before to the extent that he played it. And yeah. I have to, you know, and that, I, I still love that sort of music to this day. Um, so being in Borstal was, was, was responsible partly for my taste in music developing as it did. Yeah, I suppose, um, I, I mean, I've got quite a, an eclectic music taste as well. And I suppose that could come from, whatever channel you could um, tune into, because obviously we didn't have FM back then, did we? We weren't allowed no. it. No. We could only have AM, MW and Longwave, I think it was. We could only yeah, have. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Oh, radio. Did you yeah, remember the Ramblers? They were awesome radios, they were. And running on the old PP9 as well. But it, it <laughs> certainly come down to what um, whatever radio station you could pick, pick up. And uh, okay, I think, it, where was it? I think it was Chelmsford. Um, I was there in 87, right. and the only thing that I could pick up was um, classical music. Okay. And, uh, and it was, and it, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like when you're down the block or you're in a police station, you just end up counting the bricks, you get so bored. Yeah. So if, if music can, can help sort of remove you away from your environment, if you like, um, and, and classical music for me, wow, it really did sort of um, transcend me over the other side of the wall. Um, it can actually, yeah, I, I like a bit of classical music yeah. now and again. It takes you somewhere different, doesn't it? Of course, yeah, it does, if you allow it to. Um, yeah. and, and you get to a point where you really understand the orchestra. You can hear each individual um, instrument being played. Yeah. Um, you sort of work out how it all sits together. And it's just, yeah, and and I think it also helped, I mean, I used to use it in prison this time around. Um, I, I, was, um, I began a degree uh, in prison uh, this time. And I used to use it um, because it become, it become, if you like, habitual background uh, mm. noise. So therefore, it, it didn't interrupt with my studying, but it enabled me to keep a level 
So I, my mind didn't drift off. The music was, if you like, um, taking over the background, any background noise, and by that I also mean the black dog and demons and so on, as well as the noise of the prison, uh, and allowed me to just concentrate on my studies. Uh, well, whether or not that's true, um, in respect of scientific value, I don't know, but it mm. worked for me. And, and at the end of the day, when it comes down to most things in life, it's courses for courses. It's all about being being right for you and doing things right for you. If you like the uh, the self holistic individual approach on yourself um, to sort you out and, yeah, and, and things like that help. Mm. Yeah, so, so I'd like I'd like to I'd like to take you back, if I may, exactly. to your first experience of actually having your liberty taken away. Can you remember that? Can you remember? I I I, I certainly can um, because what happened was well. To be honest, it was uh, an experience that was replaced soon after um, by an even worse experience when I was in juvenile court. I was already um, in the care of the authorities. Uh, I was in juvenile court. This was down in Ramsgate. I was in juvenile court. And uh, my mum and dad were there. And they were sitting, they're both dead now, God bless them. And they were, and they were both sitting behind me and we were, they were obviously discussing the case. And then the magistrates, as they do, they got up and went back to, to, to um, discuss my sentence. And all of a sudden, we've heard this door open and close, and then dum, 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 dum. And this copper uh, who, who hated me and my mates with a passion mm. um, walked into the court and said, oh, I've come to collect the prisoner before the magistrates had come out um, to sentence me. Wow. And, um, yeah, my mum started crying. And it, he knew, you could tell by his face. And, you, and obviously back then, the prosecutor used to be the chief inspector of the police. It wasn't yeah. by prosecution. And, um, and the chief inspector, even he, what happened after that, I don't know. But, um, well, in respect to that, but I had actually, um, I went to run um, out of the court, even before mm. I got sentenced. And... Uh, they managed to grab hold of me, and it was the first time that I'd really. My dad, I, my dad used to be in the Marines. He was uh, in the uh, uh, three command, and right. uh, never really talked about anything. He was my dad was very um, not insular as such. I mean, he was quite an outgoing person, but he was quite and, and not secretive. Um, yeah. he, he didn't really talk about um, his time in the Marines much. But when I was in the children's home, they used to come and visit me. Um, and we used to sit there, they, uh, Glebelands it was in Kenya, it it's not there anymore, Harriet's. And then in the grounds um, by the security unit was this uh, uh, activity part in the woods. We had this assault net, this huge assault net, and we used to sit on that. And it kind of took my dad back. And then he started talking to me about um, sort of things in Marine. I think he realised it was like, not this was a time to tell him, because I don't know if he actually spoke to any of the family about it, but it was like, this is a time that you sort of need to learn survival. <laughs> uh, not, not, not having to sort of um, dodge bullets or anything like that, but more about, right, this is different now. This is getting serious. Now's the time. And, it, and some of the stuff that he told me sort of has stuck with me. One was how to um, survive a hand grenade. What, I've never been able to use that yet. But, um, 
some of his advice. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it stood me in good stead, um, sort of moving forward, if you like, through the system. Um, I was still emotionally, I mean, I think there's, there's an unwritten law or unwritten um, statement that um, men in the criminal justice system don't mature until they're 29. And right. to be honest, with my experience, I actually agree with that. Um, mm. And um, I, I kind of, I didn't really, me, I was a bit of a late starter. <laughs> I didn't really start emotionally maturing until 2005 when I'd started work as a mentor. Mm. Um, but as I say, it, it kind of led on because of the good feeling I've got out of it and the identity that it finally gave me. Um, I become a, a, a big fish in a very small pond, uh, in, yeah. in a very small pond. And I don't mean that in a, like, he's sort of different like that at all. Mm. Um, but it, it really did make me, and I'm the youngest of six, so I spent a lot of my life in shadows of um, comparison. Yeah. And uh, with a lot of my family members. And obviously, youngest of six, um, you'd assume that it's a big family as well on the outskirts, on the sort of indirectly, and it is, it's huge. So there were always um, comparisons. And um, I was never like my brothers and sisters. However, as soon as I hit senior school, I was just like my cousins. And my two cousins were a bit, uh, let's just say, naughty and Andy. Uh, mm. And uh, uh, and as soon as, as a sort of impressionable, I suppose, my first year of senior school, I kind of trying to find your feet like you do, you, you keep your head down. But by the second year, or by the, by the end of the first year, I, I was starting to find my feet early. And I started turning into sort of how I was. And uh, when, when I hit second year, that was when, again, the shadows of comparison started with my cousins. But this time, rather than be, you're not like, it was, you're just like. So it's like, great, I fit in, wicked. This is, this is how um, I need to behave to be able to fit in. And, and the school I went to wasn't much cop anyway. I mean, I read a book that a professor put together. Um, and it's about, um, it used to be known as Cunningham High School. Mm. It's now Marlow Academies. But um, he actually said about um, the, the, the teachers at Student College, if they used to get assigned Cunningham, they used to cry because um, the place was, had such a bad reputation. So by the time I hit third year, um, I, I'd given up, to be honest. Mm. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't like learning, I didn't like school, or I didn't like the particular school I was in. I loved learning, as I say. I mean... My, my nan lived around the, the uh, literally around the corner from my local library. So every time I visit my nan, I'd be visiting the library, or every time I visit the library, I'd visit my nan. And that's from the age of 10. So it was never anything about learning. I just yeah. said, I love learning. It was how it was being delivered and how I was being treated. And one thing I'll keep using is that um, it took me to the age of 48 to understand what the teachers meant by if only David had applied himself. Um, I just passed an access module to see if I could be good enough to do a, an open university module because yeah. I've never gone down the academic route other than using education in prison, which only takes you to level two. Mm. So um, it, it was, um, yeah, I mean, it just, um, but it all, it all 
um, I've probably missed a point here, but it all comes back to that day in 2005 um, when everything previous um, made sense. And from 2005 to getting out in 2017, from now on, all of that now makes sense. Mm. So it's as if I've gone through stages and, and I'd like to think in a way that, and again, I don't have to justify this to anyone as long as I believe it in myself, that um, not that I've had to have gone through that, but um, to sort of, if you like, take control of it to be able to utilise it. Um, in a, to, it I, I've never had such a successful period, length of time in my life. Mm. Um, I don't even feel like I'm going to mess up and let yeah. anyone down. Um, whereas in the past, I've always had those doubts. And I, I seem to get stronger every day. And it's as if things are happening every day as well. So that's why I, I'm, I'm so in love with my hashtag, what can be, because yeah. it really is a case of what can be. And Graham, it's not just about, yes, I'm doing a degree, but that's for me. I mean, I, I started off at entry level three in prison, which was mm. um, the equivalent, I believe, of a 10, 11 year old. So yeah. that's where my education began in prison. Um, I had to, because there was no records, I had to prove myself. Um, they could tell I could do it. Um, yeah. But then it, it was good because it, it gave me good scores. And each time I moved up the levels, I was trying to beat the last scores, if you like, from the previous mm. level. So I was challenging myself um, within each of those levels to beat the previous levels, so to speak. So... Um, I've personally gone through the whole of the education part from, from entry level three up to degree. Um, had I not, I wouldn't be doing a, good, a degree now. So but what I'm saying is I wanted to get to this level. We all have our own views or that's why subjective. We have our own views of levels mm. and what's successful. One person doesn't have to be successful. The other, I mean, some days actually getting myself out of bed is a success. And yet other days, I don't see writing anything less than 5,000 words for my next article as anything less than a success. Yeah. So again, it's, it's, it's subjective. Not only is it subjective to the individual, but it's also subjective to your circumstances at that particular time. Mm. Um, for me personally, I've, I've set myself a destination and without being pompous or, or, or pretentious, that is to leave a legacy that my great-grandchildren's children will be proud of. How I get to that point is neither here nor there. Um, and that allows me so much scope, but it also means that I can manage my expectations without having to worry about managing my expectations because I know where I'm going. I don't yet know the path. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite exciting times at the moment. It certainly is. So what was the what was the one thing, if there was a one thing, what was the one thing that made you change, that made you re made you decide? <coughs> was, well, it, was it a heart-shaped decision that you decided on? I, 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 I would say, I, I'm going to be totally honest, Graham. Um, what happened was um, I lost everything, um, absolutely everything. Um, and, and I don't just mean materialistic. I mean, family... Uh, my own fault through through my own irresponsible selfish behavior and the attitude that I had towards everyone but then 
I was making those sort of decisions whilst under the influence of heroin, crack, cocaine, um, alcohol, um, barbiturates, tranquilizers. I mean, I, I was a walking boot. Do you know what I mean? Right. Mental, absolutely mental where I ended up. But it, it was, I say where I ended up, um, it was through the decisions that I made in society over this period of time um, that saw me back in, in prison and saw me mm. back on my arse. And, yeah. and I've, I've been rock bottom, as I say, I've been in prison and you can view it as rock bottom or you can view it as a starting point. And for me, I, it, 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 didn't, it wasn't rock bottom or a starting point. It become home. So I didn't see it as either. I, I if you like, created my own smoke screen um, of how prison, I, how I managed to view prison in the end. Um, but when I went back, um, I had to go back with a mission. But as I say, I mean, I, I was living in a shop doorway. Um, I I had made a decision. Uh, sorry, I was in, I was in a well. I was out of the area, and I had to see the caps team at the local council. And they had said to me that to declare and confirm that I'm homeless, they will need to see me out on three consecutive nights, um, and then I can start the process of being able to go into one of their hostels. Yeah. So, um, and I just thought, you know what? Um, I've had enough. I, I, I just, I, I, I just can't be. But I didn't say this to them. And, and my view was to commit suicide that evening. Wow. And I had said to me, but part of what he had told me was, and I hadn't been staying there at that period, was this church. Uh, and he told me about staying in um, the porch there. It's one of those areas that they regularly visit, so the chances of me being seen are higher. So I thought, right, well, okay, good idea. And then it dawned on me that a church, what was stopping me, so I suppose, I, I was having those thoughts, being like, well, I'm having nothing, you, you kind of do have suicidal thoughts. And um, I was more concerned about being found by a member of public, and that was what was stopping me. So when the word church was mentioned, for some reason, it felt a little bit more easier to allow someone within the church environment to find me, if that makes sense. Um, and <clears throat> that night, um, I, I cried myself to sleep. When I woke up, I was quite convinced that, see you later, adios. And I woke up, and it was quite funny, because I had this, this jumper over my head, and it was a sort of meshy jumper. So I could see this image. <laughs> And I had to have a little smile. To me. I, I, I mean, I was quite rational, so I knew it was someone standing there. I didn't think there was mm. either way or anything. So um, there was this guy standing there, and he used where I was quite regularly. I mean, there was enough room for about 10 people. Um, he used where I was quite regularly. However, he'd been away from the area for a week, and he'd been, um, in, another, he'd been in another county, funny enough. Mm. Uh, and things had gone a, got a bit hot. And he needed to get out of the area. So yeah, he come back after a week. And uh, we started talking. He gave me, a, I'll never forget this either. He gave me, um, there we are, homeless. It's about half 10 at night, pissing down with rain. And uh, he's given me, he's pulled out of his bag and he's given me a, uh, a Pret-a-Mange uh, sandwich because Pret-a-Mange give to the homeless. Yeah, I know they do. End of the shift. Sorry, end of the shift, end of the day. And at soup kitchens as well. And uh, so he's given me this uh, pret chicken and avocado sandwich. And it was quite, 
<laughs> quite a surreal moment. Yeah, really. there, like, Ross sandwiches pissing down with rain on us in the church doorway. But um, and then because of the rain, um, opposite the church there was this roundabout, and on the roundabout was this massive fir tree, and obviously fir trees are pretty good for protection especially big ones and and this one i don't know the names of fir trees i'm not a culturist but they virtually touched the floor so yeah. they had like a little cabin a, a cubby hole if you like it was like a uh mm. i can't remember that, a, a cover over yeah. so um um where it's been raining this guy's come over and he's all wet brian his name was i never forget him scottish guy uh got his cowboy hat on with a guitar strapped over him. It just, again, another surreal moment. And he was Scott, and we started talking, and we all got on pretty well. And then the next day, um, we've gone to McDonald's. Uh, I didn't have any money on me. Brian and Brian was like, oh, I've only got enough for myself. Ollie was like, oh, I've only got enough for myself. So I said, well, no worries. Around the corner, there's another church, St. Stephen's, that um, you could get a cup of tea if you was homeless, and you, mm. could, you could pay what you can afford. One of yeah. them sort of chaps. Well, anyway, I've gone around there and there's this poster up. Um, there was this um, organisation, um, Action for Homeless, and they had a double-decker bus uh, without a roof and uh, the old Route 66 type. And um, they were doing this promotion. And what, how they work was they try and look for finances to buy houses. They take the house on for a period of time and then they put homeless people. And then the homeowner gets obviously profit of the rent and um, they get the house back after a period of time. Such a great idea it was. So, but they were providing food and drink and, they, and I see they were setting up at the back. So I said, oh, so I'm a two minutes. I said, yeah, come back round, come back round, like um, an hour. So I've gone back round, told the guys, and we've gone back round now. And then it's just from there on, it's just got better and, well, I say it's got better and better and better. Um, but it got better being homeless. So obviously that, and I did say to Brian, I said, do you realise, and Ollie, um, but it was Ollie that I obviously saw first, and said, you do realise, I said, that um, without even realising it, you two have possibly saved my life. And got a bit emotional. <laughs> um, but then um, I, I'd i helped someone out. Uh, I was in a homeless uh, um, shelter, um, the Ark, run by Salvation Army, where you can go, they're open from sort of, eight o'clock in the morning to half three in the afternoon. Mm. So during the day, you can have free coffee and toast for breakfast. And they, they, they used to do an amazing cook breakfast, £1.50, so it's pretty cheap. And it's also a way to get the big issue, pick up the big issue from mm. the third one and sell the big issue. So um, someone needed a bit of help with the benefit. So I cut a long story short, managed to get sorted. Oh, you'll get on with my brother. So met their brother. Uh, he ended up to be a local drug dealer, uh, dealing crack heroin. I was sort of working on the door to his place where he was selling from and getting free drugs. And then one night, um, we were sitting there, uh, there's three of us there, and we're having a talk, obviously talking about prison and, and everything else, a few emotional stories. And that was the moment, if you like, where it was like, what am I I could quite easily. Now, I I made the decision that the place for me to go to sort myself out was back to prison. I knew it was where I could do it um, because 
I, I'm, I, I can get on in prison. I mean, at the end of the day, I was, I was on drugs and I was homeless. For a start, I'm going to have a roof over my head, guaranteed, and I know I'm going to be eating, regardless of anything else. So um, I went back to prison, but I had to commit a crime that would give me the right amount of time. But at that point, I had nothing to no one in my life. So the crime I committed, whether or not it could have got me a life sentence, for me, was a win-win situation. That's why I chose armed robbery. Um, and it was a win-win situation because I was either going to get long enough to sort myself out or I was going to get life. Now, one of the reasons why I wanted to sort myself out so much was for my children and for my grandchildren or my grandchild. I've got two now. And um, that was my main driving force was sort myself out for them. Mm -hmm. And for me, of course. I mean, I'd already made that decision for me. Yeah. Um, Right, that's what I need to do. This is why I need to do it. But there was more to it. I've been, I've been more an activist in the past than I've been a reformer. But I've also been a criminal. I've also been institutionalised. So really, what I'm doing now is no different to what I used to do in prison. Um, the only difference is I've got a wider audience and access to the internet. Um, it's about using lived experience, using those negative experiences that I've had to go through through life in order not, not to uh, look what I did, hey, look at me, everybody, but um, this is what, this is, it's not about telling people what to do. It's look, because we all do it individually. It's a case of this is what I did and this is how I did it. And if people can take things from that, and it, but the thing is, Brian, I mean, I had a 40 year relationship with the criminal justice system. This was the first time that I took decision. I took responsibility. I accepted that prison was the, I, if you like, done Maslow in reverse. I accepted all of that first and then I worked back and then I worked down to get my other needs. Yeah. And it worked. I mean, this is my, this is the first time in 40 years I've had nothing to do with the criminal justice system. It's the first time since prison licenses, the sort of the latest prison licenses were introduced that I've been able to complete a license without being recalled on the stand. Wow. It's the wow. first time I've ever got through bail hostels and I've, I, I had to go through two separate ones this time. Um, this is probably the longest that I've ever gone without being arrested. And that was all because of myself making that decision and knowing what it was, where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do, but how I needed to get there. And rather than be an activist, I wanted to be a campaigner and use my lived experience in a way that people would listen, would not shy away from. Mm. Uh, and, oh, you, rah! giving it all of that really doesn't get anywhere. anywhere no. I learn. And it, I suppose that, that saying, the pen is mighty than the sword, is very, very true. Mm. And I learned, I'd, I'd already understood the language with thanks to the prison oracle, Mark Leach, absolutely wonderful guy. Um, he was someone I very much looked up to and learned a lot from over the years about how to do it the right way. Rather than tell them F you, what you should be doing is you should be stating previous case law <laughs> um, and, and, and you should structure an argument, not a case of see you, you this is shit. And, and, and telling them in a certain way that stuff is rubbish, but not just saying stuff is rubbish for the sake of it but saying, look, I don't believe this is working because, however, if we can do this, 
then I suggest that this may be the outcome. So it's about learning how to work with the prisons mm. um, and the officers and so on and so forth. And then I've now been able to transferable skills, which have nothing to do with vocational qualifications, have nothing to do with educational qualifications, but it's still education um, that goes on every single second of the day in prison. When you're problem solving, critical thinking, being in, uh, innovative, uh, team building, team working. I mean, there, there's so many transferable skills just from the landings and the wings of prison um, that, as I say, it's about putting it all together. And rather than it takes someone 40 years to work it out, they can see how I did it and go, okay, I can adapt that and do it this way after three years. <laughs> so mm. that's, that's, if you like, that's the goal. Um, and as I say, leaving a legacy is, is the dream. Um, and how I get there, well, we'll have to wait and see. That's, that's, um, that's being in the present. That's having a future, but also being in the present. And, and, and I mean, who would have predicted COVID? Um, oh, nobody. Without that plan, um, I've been able to just literally adapt immediately. Uh, and lockdown has been, and again, I, I hate talking about it in a positive light because so many people have had such um, a sad um, circumstances happened to them throughout COVID. But for me, it's been a blessing in disguise. Um, mm. It's enabled me, if you like, um, to, to sort of the last, I suppose, six months have been more like two years. Um, yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, as I say, it's been absolutely incredible. Yeah, I think, I think COVID-19, <coughs> I've, actually, I've actually turned it into a positive. I think you have to. You can you can say, oh, look, I can't do this, and I can't do that. I'm supposed to be doing this. You you have, you know, I know a chap called uh, Steve Judge, who's a who's a um, motivational speaker, and he said, focus on what you can do. What? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I I always um, uh, use the quote from Aristotle, but it's not. I found that it's Marcus Aurelius who turned around and said, you only have control over your own mind, not outside events. Yeah. realize this and you will find strength and that's been very much i mean i not only did i have quotes like that positive quotes in my cell and on my cell wall but i also there were i, I studied nlp neurolinguistic mm. programming while yeah. i was in and i took aspects of it that were beneficial for me and that was yeah. modeling that was modeling um the, the whole aspect of nlp was based on modeling loads at the top of their game so rather yeah. than I took how they set up NLP and I started looking at people at the top of their game in what I wanted to do mm. and how they got there and obviously tried to mirror. Um, I then used um, from the library once again a book on transactional analysis which enables you to take a look at the three parts of your personality, the adult, the child and the parent. Yeah. Um, and another one that I took on board was um, a book called uh, The Marshmallow Test by Walter Michel, which talks of delayed gratification and the importance of delayed gratification. Mm. Just like in a prison sentence, delayed gratification is obviously yes. one of the life, something I had to have in abundance at that stage. But going back to 2005, that's what I learned. Um, by becoming a mentor, um, it taught me more tolerance, it gave me more patience, more understanding, more empathy, um, experience in not only discussing my issues, but also 
to bring out someone else's issues and be able to discuss them with them when I started training with the Samaritans as a listener. So again, it become another level of, of mentoring uh, yeah. that surpassed that of Shannon Trust and took me to another level, myself personally, but unfortunately within a prison environment. Well, so unfortunately for me, I wouldn't change anything now for the world because it set me up to, to be one of the, not financially yet, but that's, that's around the corner and what I do isn't for money. I mean, mm. um, we look at it, what's more important, um, providing an opportunity for change for so many on my bank account, you know what I mean? So um, for me, yeah, that, that's, it, it, it's, and what excites me now as well with COVID, um, and again, so we use it in a positive way, but what excites me about COVID is it's really forced the prison's hand in respect to digital technology and finding other ways of education whilst people are in their cells. So mm. hopefully it's something that we can grab a hold of and build on. Um, yeah. and, and because at the end of the day, 95% of people in prison don't want to be in there. They're probably in there through a set of circumstances that under different situations, they may make a different decision. Mm. But did they have the correct skills to be able to make the right decisions in the first place? And was that their fault? I'm not saying that um, crime is, to, is putting crime on everyone else's shoulders. It is down to the individual, like I've said myself, that I'm responsible for every single second of my sentence. And I, I'm, I accept every single second of my prison sentence. Mm -hmm. I deserved it. Um, and, I, and I believe they were fair and right in what they sentenced me to. But um, um, that's what it's about. It, it's about understanding that. And it's also about understanding that those in prison, the majority, again, are going to be coming home soon. So why not um, provide them with the right opportunities and, and the, the, the proper skills to enable them to become a tax-paying member of society rather than a drain on um, society's tax, um, which prisons obviously are. So, um, and for me, with education, it's proven mm. that it provides a return on investment of five to one. So for every one pound spent on education, you receive five pound in return. And that's not, that's just reducing reoffending. That isn't when you take on board yeah. the, the, the individual finding employment and becoming a taxpayer. So instead of taking money out of the system, they're putting money back into the system. So it, it, the saving then is double. Um, and of course, the less money that we spend on the criminal justice system, the more money we'll have to spend on other things that are just, well, are worthy, are more worthy, like um, the healthcare system. Yeah. And um, I'm not saying the prisons aren't worthy, but I'm just saying in the eyes of society, the more worthy um, environments are hospitals, care homes, schools, mm. armed forces. So the quicker that we can turn our criminal justice system around and provide an environment that's fit for purpose and fit for change and reform mm. and right skills and right knowledge to be able to live um, a successful life in society, then the quicker that we will be able to spend more money on those um, other resources, oh, sorry, those other um, utilities, if you like. It makes sense, surely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. David, we're going to have to do it. Yep. 
we're running we're running out of time for your next meeting but um <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to do another talk we're gonna have to have another chat another said, time. down the block just so i can have a rest mate i'm telling you <laughs> i was gonna say you'll probably need to have a cup of tea and what have you been between I'm, meetings. Right, I'm good but it's but, but, but yeah we'll have to arrange to have another one um yes. it's been an absolute pleasure sorry i've got to go early uh, but uh, david tell me uh, if anybody that's listening if anyone that's listening wants to get in contact with you, how do they get in contact with you? Um, well, obviously, there's my blog, Journey Reform Man, which is on WordPress at Journey journeyofareformman.net. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I use Instagram, but Instagram is just it is what it is. Mm. Um, I don't use Facebook or Twitter. Um, don't really like them. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn or through my blog. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, thank you very much, Graham. And enjoy your day, the rest thank of your day. You have a great you. week, and the same to your listeners. I hope they have a great day and enjoy the rest of the week. And yeah. don't forget, people, education makes the impossible possible. Fantastic, David. Thank you very much. And we'll thank talk you, Graham. You're a star. All the best. Take care now. Bye, Bye. Bye mate. Bye. Bye. Bye.